Hey, we've been in our series, you guys know this, if you've been here uh, through the series, uh, through the book of Luke, called To Seek and to Save. And um, of course, the theme of the book of Luke is all about the Son of Man, that Jesus is proving that Jesus is the Son of Man that was prophesied by Daniel and by others in the Old Testament, the one that was going to come that was from Adam. And Adam and, and Eve, they were going to have, there was going to be one that came from Eve and she was going to give birth and then that was going to be the Savior of the world. And so we talk through that, that he is called the Son of Man, the Messiah who was going to come. And so Luke is giving a very detailed account of that. And today we're going to look at the theme verse. We're not going to get to the theme verse, but the theme verse is going to be part of what we're going to talk about today, which is for the Son of Man, which Luke is talking about, has come to seek and to save the lost. That Jesus himself came to seek us when we didn't care to be sought. He came to save us when we didn't know we needed to be saved. And he came to us when we refused to admit sometimes we're even lost. Men who drive know that, right? Like I, I don't need to ask for directions. I'm good. I'll figure out the way to get there. So um, that's Jesus. And, and Luke is writing his account of the true life of what happened about Jesus to let us in on what it looks like when God comes to seek and to save that which is lost. That going all the way back to Genesis, mankind lost his way, chose to go against God. God banished him from the Garden of Eden, from paradise, from his presence, and said, I'm going to provide a way back for you. You need to trust me by faith that I will provide that way. And so everyone in the Old Testament was saved by trusting God's way. By saying, God, we can't save ourselves, but we'll still obey you, believing that you'll save us someday. And we look back saying, God, we're still trying to obey, and you've sent your Savior, and we believe in Jesus and who he is and what he did, and so we know that saves us and that we'll be with you one day. It's the same story. It doesn't change. There's not like an old story and a new story. It's, it's one story about the God of the universe who is going to send a man, a God-man, to save his people. And if you remember... Where we're at in the book of Luke, we're right in chapter 15. Jesus, a few chapters ago, said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And he said, this will be the last time. I'm going there to die. And so now Jesus is giving his teachings on the way to Jerusalem. He's giving his final teachings. He's trying to get the people ready. And if you remember, the people of his day, when, they, when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, in their mind, they're thinking, we're going to get to be watching him overthrow the Romans, take the throne in Jerusalem, which is prophesied. He's going to reign, and all of us Jewish people and we disciples, we're going to be kings and powerful people with him when he destroys everyone and goes back to the temple and takes over. And Jesus' message that we've been reading is a message that's entirely different from that, and it's really throwing things in turmoil. It's throwing the religious leaders in turmoil. It's throwing his disciples in turmoil. It's throwing the community in turmoil. They don't know what to do because he's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, to lay down my life. And they can't wrap their head around this because everything they've been taught to believe, falsely been taught to believe, this doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to work this way. And he's like, that's because you haven't, read your Bible, you haven't dug in to see that you need a sacrifice, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. And that's what I'm doing. And so Jesus is giving these teachings. Now this morning, these teachings we're going to look at, to me, are some of the hardest that you're going to see in the book of Luke. These are hard. 
I'm not going to mix it up. Jesus, in what we're going to look at, talks about some of the hardest things there are. He talks about hell. He talks about money. He talks about marriage and relationships. All in this section. And he is not nice about it. He's blunt. And it's painful. But you have to remember that he's blunt about it because he's trying to get them to see their need to cry out to God, to repent, to say, God, please save us. So he's not hard teaching because he doesn't love them. He's not hard teaching to try to get them to feel useless and worthless. He's hard teaching because he so cares about them. He wants them to see that when I die, there is a way for you to be forgiven. But I can't deny and you can't deny that this is who you are. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would soften our hearts this morning. Or that the things we're going to look at are things that most people, when they hear, they just want to run. They don't want to think through. They don't want to, to deal with. And for those of us who have dealt with them, there's rejoicing knowing that we have. But Lord, the reality is there's still more that you want to peel away in our heart because you want to show us how much you care for us, how much we typically don't care for you or care for others. And you want to use us. You don't want us to feel useless. You don't want us to feel prideful. And you don't want us to feel like we're our own gods. We, you want us to feel like we're a part of a family where we, we work together for your glory and your good. So Lord, help us as we read your word this morning and study it to be changed. Pray it all in your name. Amen. This morning what we're going to look at is, what is this I hear about you? It's one of the questions we're going to look at. What is this I hear about you? And isn't this the case? Like, we live in a news cycle, we live in a rumor mill where people are always talking about other people and talking about things. What is this I hear about you? Well, is it this? Is this true? Is that true? And there's all this stuff floating around. And at the end of the day, it's what's really true about us. What's really true about our world. What's really true about God. And in Luke 15.1, remember, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. It says all. This is a massive crowd. People are coming. These are the sinners. These are people that have been declared sinful by the religious leaders. That's why they're called sinners. Like, like everybody knows they're sinners. This isn't, this isn't a surprise. And it says, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one till he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, coming home, calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me, because I've found my lost sheep. You see, the Pharisees are saying, what is this we hear about you that you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You don't eat with those kinds of people in their mind. Now, you can teach those kind of people. They didn't have a problem with Jesus teaching them because they taught those kind of people. And they tried to get those people to believe what they told them and to do what they told them to do. They didn't have a problem with Jesus teaching. Their problem was when he moved from teaching to actually caring. And that's when they had a problem. And notice, it doesn't say Jesus just hung out with tax collectors and sinners. It says he was teaching them. 
He was teaching them how not to be sinners, how to repent. Yes, he was hanging out, but they were coming to him, it says, to listen to him. They weren't coming to him because they were best buds and he's not going to confront us. He's not going to talk about sin. They came to him knowing that this is the guy that talks about, like, the reality of the world. This is the guy that tells us, like, it really is. He doesn't pull back. He's truthful with us. He's honest. He's caring. Like, we want to hear from this guy. So the Pharisees, of course, are jealous that... We can't draw these crowds like Jesus can. And so as a result, they're complaining and they're saying, not only does he welcome them, but then he even eats with them. Now there's a verse in our Bible we'll look at in a little bit about who we're not supposed to eat with or eat with, according to Scripture. This isn't a wrong teaching to talk about being careful who you fellowship with, being careful who you sit at a table and who you associate with. Scripture talks about that. The Old Testament talks about it. The New Testament talks about it. But it's the heart, and that's what they're getting at. And that's exactly what Jesus is confronting. And so he tells them this parable. Now, why parables? Because if we're honest, parables or stories cause us to think more, right? A story draws us in, and so Jesus tells this story to draw them in. And a parable is not just a story, it's a story with a specific point. It's a story that gets to a point. And he looks and he says, look, this lost sheep, I I left the 99 to go find this one lost sheep. Now, again, to the Pharisees, that would have been crazy. Why leave the congregation to go out. You've got all these people around. You're popular, you're good. And Jesus is like, no, we got to keep going and finding the lost sheep. Because remember, he says, my purpose was to seek and to save the lost. The lost. That's what he says. And then he goes on and he says this, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now this verse has been used to only deal with salvation. This verse often gets misused to only deal with salvation, to only say when when a person repents and they actually accept God's forgiveness and grace, then they accept it and then it's over and and the heavens rejoice and then the heavens say, get busy. That is not a proper teaching. Jesus is saying, we are prone to wander. We have a song we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. (laughs) Like we are prone to wander and Jesus says, I know that and I'm going to keep trying to seek you out because I care about you. The question is, what will your response be? The little lamb didn't run away. Most likely, when the shepherd went out to call, the lamb came to him and he found it, put it on his shoulders and brought it home. And notice, he doesn't just celebrate with himself and look at my lamb. He invites others to celebrate with him. Listen, when you repent of a sin, when you say you're sorry and mean it and try to act differently, when you try to allow God to change your heart in areas... Heaven rejoices over that. 
There is more joy in heaven over you when you repent, when you say, I shouldn't do it that way. I'm sorry, Lord. Lord, change me. I'm ready to get back on your shoulders. I'm ready to rejoice with the community of believers. I was lost. I'm going to tell them I was lost and now I'm found. There's going to be celebration. See, we're to celebrate when people want to say I'm sorry and repent. The Pharisees want no celebration. The Pharisees just want to say you need to repent more. There's more you need to do. There's more penance. There's more Hail Marys. There's more stuff you got to do. Versus saying no, we, we, want, to, we want joy in seeing people repent. Now, is there false repentance in Scripture? Absolutely. The Bible talks about it. You see it in Acts very early on in the early church when there's a sorcerer named Simon who comes to know the Lord supposedly through Philip. He's baptized. Peter and the disciples come to see what God is doing in this, in this Gentile village, in this Gentile place with Simon. And Simon tries to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. And Peter goes, you are cursed. Repent. Cry out to God and repent. And Simon said, you pray for me. And walked away. So even in the early church, it was supposedly great and awesome and perfect. Philip in the early didn't get it right. Like, I missed that one. He said he repented. We baptized him. But wow, it just came out. He doesn't know the Lord. And then we're surprised by that. When it happened very early on in the early church. See, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't, all baptism is is a declaration to say, you can help me have joy in heaven. You can help me be more repentant so I can have, bring joy to my heavenly father. Because anytime we look at God and say, God, I'm not God, I need you, change me. God goes, yes, the angels in heaven rejoice. It's like, that's somebody, yes. This isn't a one-time thing. He goes on and he says, or what woman? who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her woman friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Like Jesus is like, there is joy when there's repentance. When we see the reality of the brokenness and the lostness in our world, and then we respond to it, there's joy. Now, this necklace that we're talking about, most scholars say that this would have been a bridal necklace. A bridal necklace that was given to her, and if one of the coins fell off this necklace or she lost one of these coins, that would have been a shame to her. It would have been a shame to the shepherd to, to lose a sheep, to lose a coin. But this shepherd and this woman, they're not ashamed to find it. And they're, look at this, they're not afraid to declare that it was lost and found. They're not afraid to hide that I lost it and it's found. They're not afraid to declare that I was a sinner, now I'm saved. I was wrong, God's trying, he's helping me to be right. They're, they call the neighbors together to talk about their stupidity and losing their keys all the time. Like, seriously, right? Like, you and I, we lose stuff. We meant, like, I found it. Okay, we're having a party. They invite everybody over. Matt found his keys again. Woo! Like, this is a, that's what he's getting to. He's like, look, 
It's about the actions that you take in repentance. And so often, the actions we take in repentance is when someone repents, we cross our arms and go, got to do more than that. Now, I'm not saying we don't think. We don't watch. We're not careful. That's our job as believers is to make sure that there's fruit worthy of repentance, that there's fruit that comes out, that we, that we look at the heart and say, hey, did you really repent? Like, I, I'm struck. You might have. I don't know the human heart. I can't judge your salvation. But it doesn't look like you did because you haven't changed anything, and I'm concerned for you. Like, that's an honest conversation to have. It's a biblical conversation to have. But there should be joy. I don't know if you've seen the news. I didn't know I was going like, to, this is where we're at in the passage. And at the same time we're at in the passage, there's a guy named Kane West who's a rapper who gets saved. Kanye. Kanye. <laughs> I saw the words in my head. Kanye West who gets saved. If you've been around our church long enough, you know that is not unusual for me to mispronounce something. Kanye West gets saved. It's terrible. He does. Yes. Cain, Abel, you know. I don't know if he truly knows Christ or not. We don't know yet. I'm not going to say he didn't. I'm not going to start posting on Facebook. Well, he's going to have to do more than write a song. He's going to have to do more than tell people about Jesus. He's got to prove to me. Like, if people would have done that to me, I would have been in real trouble when I came to faith. I came to faith and I was still a wreck. I had so much stuff I had to undo in my life and so many people I needed to ask forgiveness from and so much stuff God had to deal with me and I still have so much. Because here's the thing about it. The closer you get to God, the more light shines on you and the dirtier you are forever. Like, you see your need for the gospel every day more than you did the first time you accepted it when you truly walk with God. You're like, man, I gotta repent even, Wow. I'm, 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 wow, I'm worse than I thought I was. And God loves me more than I thought he did. It's, it's a both and. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of God still changing us, still us repenting. It's not, well, I repented once, you need to repent once. It's, no, I'm still repenting. I'm still crying out to him. I'm still trying to walk with him and do it with me. Let's do it together. So, man, I hope that it's real. I hope that he continues down that path of repentance. And I'm sure there are going to be stumbles. I'm sure he's going to do it wrong and have to come back. That, that's called faith. That's every biblical character we have in the entire Bible. They were murderers, adulterers. They were, they were thieves. They were liars. And God still used them because they kept coming back to God. We have their story because these were the men that kept saying, God's still seeking me and I'm still seeking him and I'm going to repent again because I, I believe he can love me. I believe he can change me. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. These Pharisees weren't teaching that. These Pharisees were saying you had to pay your way. You had to come to temple and make more sacrifices. Sound familiar to a branch of Christianity today? And God's like, that's not the way it works. You rejoice. You have a party. You, you, like last week when we baptized Oscar last week. And I said, we're taking time in our greeting. You go hug him. This is awesome. This is a celebration. This is my child in whom I delight. God's like, yes. That's, it's a celebration. The LeBlancs invited their friends. They, they invited people to come. Because they're like, our son's repenting. Yes. 
that should be our heart. God, wash me clean again today. I remember my baptism and I'm thankful that I can have it again today and again tomorrow and again the next day. I don't have to keep getting rebaptized. I just know I did it. So I know I am. He goes on and he says this. He also said a man had two sons. Oops, I got clicker happy. Sorry. Okay, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. To who? Them. Most of us, when we read this story, miss that part. See, the father didn't just distribute assets to the younger son. He considered himself dead to both. I'm dying for both of you. Here's your inheritance. Because the only way you get an inheritance is to be dead. He gives the inheritance and he says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Jesus is telling them this story. He's saying, look guys, you need to hear this story about the shepherd and the sheep, the lost coin and the woman. And remember, the shepherd and the sheep would have related to poor people. Shepherds were typically kind of working poor in that day. Would have, would have related to men and boys. The shepherd. The, the woman would have related to the women and being married and what that meant in Jewish culture. And this one would have, would have meant a lot to families and specifically father and the line that's passed down. And so this would have, this story, saying this, everyone hearing this would have been like, what a terrible son. He, he you do not declare your father dead and, tell, and demand that you're entitled to his money. That is the most despicable act in this culture you could ever do to a father. You are dead to me. Give me what's mine now. I'm out of here. And if we're honest, we live in a culture that teaches this. A, a culture of entitlement. Listen, my parents raised me without having that mentality, and I still had that mentality because the people around me did. And I couldn't believe my parents wouldn't buy me the shoes I wanted, the clothes I wanted, made me purchase things, made me work, made me do all these things that none of my friends had to do. And I was angry and bitter with them for years. And when it was time to go, I was glad to get out. And then I got out. And it only took a few months for me to be wallowing in my dorm room on my face to realize I'm nothing. And that's exactly where you get to in the next part of the passage. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country. Remember, he's in a different country. He's no longer under the Jewish rules of how work and pay works. See, the Jews had rules for how you paid people and the exchange and all that kind of stuff. He's now a foreigner in a foreign land. He has no rights. None. He's entitled to nothing because he's a foreigner. He's lucky he can even have a job. And he goes on and he says, he sent him into his field to feed pigs. Remember, pigs are unclean animals. Jews were supposed to stay far away from them. There's reasons why pigs are unclean. I've addressed that before as we've walked through Luke. You can go back and hear it in another message. But, but he's feeding pigs. This would have been the worst case scenario. You are now a foreigner when your father lives in the land of promise, feeding pigs when you're not even supposed to be around them and your life isn't, and you've squandered everything. 
And everyone in your country would look at you and say, what a, he deserves nothing. He deserves everything he gets. I hope he dies for what he's done. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. See, in Jewish culture, there were rules to how you treat the poor and help the poor. In foreign cultures, there's not. Treat them however you want. You use them however you want. There's no giving of alms. I don't have to give alms. I don't want to. He goes and he looks and he, he's looking at his life and he's, he's saying, no one will give me anything. When he came to his, I love that. When he came to his sentence, see that's repentance. Repentance is when you finally come to your senses and you go, what am I doing? It says, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He's at the point of death. He, he's, he's starving to death. I'll get up. Go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Notice that the son doesn't just say, I've treated my dad badly. He recognizes that what he has done is he has broken the eternal covenant of his God that was given from Abraham when he told his dad that could be traced back to Abraham, you're nothing to me. He broke God's covenant. He said, God, Abraham's not worth it. His son, none of it's worth it to me. My father's dead. That culture's dead to me. I just want to enjoy my life. I only get to live once. I'm going to live it how best I can. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to do my own thing, make my own path. He goes on and he says, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. See, this is the posture of repentance. The posture of repentance realizes I deserve nothing. A matter of fact, I deserve everything I have being done to me and worse. That's the posture of repentance. That there is an almighty God who's holy and awesome and he has authorities in the world and those authorities could do anything they want to me and for some reason they haven't. Wow, God, thank you. The posture of repentance is realizing that I have no worth if God doesn't give it to me. I have no worth if I'm not connected to the Father. None. I have zero worth. And the world around here is telling you how to get your worth, how to get your identity. And there is no identity, there is no worth in the things of this world. It will leave you feeding pigs. It'll leave you in a place where if you don't come to your senses, you will go to a dark place. The rate of suicide has increased so dramatically from 10 to 20-year-olds that they don't know what to do. It's an epidemic in our culture. Your generation is killing itself. Killing itself. Why? Because we've taught them to be entitled. We don't send them off and say, you're going to have to suffer. I'm still here for you, but I'm not going to enable it. This is... It's awful what's happening because we've got to repent. Now, is repentance unloving? No, it's not unloving. That's the best part of the story. Look, he goes on, he says, so he got up and went to his father. He gets it. He's like, I don't, maybe my father will let me just be a slave. Maybe he'll just let me work. Maybe my father will, will, will just feed me because I can't get food anywhere else because I... I, but it's scary for this kid. Why is it scary for this kid? Because he knows that 
that the father gave him the inheritance. He knows that he's owed nothing. There's no entitlement. He knows that his father is a taskmaster. He's got hired hands and slaves, which means he knows how to run a business and do books, and he doesn't give stuff. Like, he knows all this, which is why he's a little scared, just hoping that my dad will let me be a hired hand. Because, listen, look, tune in. This son's interpretation of his father his entire life has been he's out to get me. He's out to get me. i got to be careful not to be gotten by my dad. And if I can just get out, I can do my own thing. And the father's never been out to get his son. He's just trying to teach him how to love himself and love other people under his authority. He goes on, he says... So he got up and went, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Dad wasn't looking, going, when I see that son of mine, whoo, he comes back, I got a thing, to smack him upside the head. Now this wasn't the third time the son, you know, came back either, unrepentant. See, the father, my guess is, had been looking for his son to come back. Daddy didn't chase him. Daddy didn't chase him. He didn't go after him. He didn't. This is hard. He said, son, I love you. I love you so much. Here's everything. Here. I don't know what else to do. He comes back, he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. Can you see the scene? Listen, for guys to run in this culture, they wore robes. Like, this is funny to me when I picture this, right? Like, have you ever tried to run in a robe or in a dress? Yeah, the, the ladies know what I'm talking about. Like, like you got to, like, tuck that thing up, and you're like, woo! Like, it's, it's funny to watch, Right? Like, like, this dad would have been, I mean, who knows how old he was, you know, if he's like me, barely can walk, much less run, with his, you know, tucked up between his legs, running to his son, and then he gets to him, drops, and, like, the imagery of this would have taken the son off guard, because the son's interpretation of his father, when he came to his senses, was, well, my dad, he's all about works, hired hands. No, the works are there because we need to work for the good of others, goes on the son said to him father look at this now the father has thrown his arms around him and kissed him this okay look this would have been the moment for the son to get the goods this would have been the moment for the son to be like oh this didn't go as i thought <laughs> i might be able to get a little bit more out of this deal than i anticipated he's hugging me loving me man i could i could really just say well well dad yeah i'm, I'm glad to be home hey it's you still got my Xbox and room? I was thinking about just hanging out, getting some stuff out of the fridge, you know, and what, you know, it seems like we're good now, right? Like, the son, the son still has to say his peace. The son still has to deal with his heart, and he looks at his father, and he says, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, Dad, I, I'm no longer, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have no worth. I, I, I'm no longer worthy, Dad goes on and it says, but the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal. It's like the dad just blows through it. Like, like he, he just blows through. He's like, 
great. Okay, here's what we're going to do. And he says, then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. When the son responds with, dad, I'm not even worthy to be your son. The father realizes, got it. He's broken. And he needs to know that he's still my son. He still needs to know that I love him. And so here's what we're going to do. Notice the story doesn't say he gets a new inheritance. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that's not part of the story. And he looks and he celebrates and he says, they be, so he calls people in. Again, in each of these stories, it's a community. It's not just one-on-one. -on -one. It's everybody's got to know. Listen, if you're the son and everybody's coming to celebrate your back after you told your dad face to face he was dead to you, you took all the money and squandered it, do you really want to be in the middle of a party right now? That would be awkward. Awkward doesn't even begin to say what that feels like if you're truly repentant. If you're truly repentant, your emotions are so messed up in this moment, you don't know what to do. You're upside down emotionally. Like, I, I'm glad this is happening, but I'm so embarrassed. I don't know what to do. My dad just yeah. The struggle of it is powerful in this imagery. He goes on and he says, now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So remember, older son got his inheritance too, and he's been working hard, doing the right thing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things mean. He doesn't even go to find out why there's rejoicing. He doesn't even care. He's like, I'm throwing a party. My dad just parties it up. I don't know what he's doing. Just go find out what's going on. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Listen, slaughtering the fatted calf was a big deal. In Jewish culture, the fatted calf represented the calf of sacrifice. That this was the chosen, this was the special calf that you were raising for a special purpose. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. His father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yeah, right. <laughs> Seriously, that is such a lie. You're telling me that kid, for however many years this went on, never didn't do what dad told him. Really? That's not true. He goes on and he says, yeah, you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You wouldn't even give me a goat, much yet sacrifice the fatted calf. I mean, the attitude of this brother, can we be honest, is what we see all over the internet with this situation. With someone who looks like they've repented and all people can do is, I don't care. Listen, I looked up the church that he attends because I was doing some research. Is this a true repentance? The church he attends is solid. The pastor that reached him, from what I can tell, is a solid biblical guy. It's not some crazy, charismatic, whatever church. And I'm looking at that going, wow. See, God can get, if, if he can get a hold of me, he can get a hold of anybody. If he can get a hold of you, then he can get a hold of anybody. And he looks at this and he says, he's back safe and sound. 
He's like, I don't care. He goes on and he says this, but when your son of yours came, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, how did he know that his younger brother was sleeping with prostitutes? My guess is older brother knew exactly what younger brother was doing and taking pride in the fact he wasn't doing it and watching him destroy his life. Didn't go warn him. Didn't say, younger brother, you don't know how much dad loves you. He's been torn up. You got to change. No, just sitting back. Yeah, you just do it. Take that. Goes on, it says, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Son, he said to them, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. The, the other son squandered it all, literally. Everything else I have is yours. That's all that's left. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We, we got to celebrate. Wait, we have to. We, we can't let this go. This is huge. This is incredible. This is, this is powerful. This is what heaven's doing. Guess what, son? We're participating with heaven right now. Because heaven's rejoicing over our son, the son that's repentant. Do you want to be with heaven or do you want to be off on your own having a pity party? Because I want to be with heaven. See, this is the beauty of, of, the, of this picture and, and it's the beauty of this story. Then Jesus goes on and he says to his disciples, so now he's taught the Pharisees. He's given them these parables. Now he turns to his disciples. He also said to them, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. Why is he talking about squandering possessions? Because we just got done with a son who squandered all the possessions. So he, turns, so he gets done talking to the Pharisees and he turns to the disciples because now you think probably the disciples are thinking, oh, we're pretty good. Those Pharisees, they're in trouble. So he turns to them. He says, the manager squandered it. So he called the manager and asked, what is this I hear about you? See, nobody was calling the son. The older brother wasn't going to ask, what is this I hear about you, older brother, that you're squandering and sleeping with prostitutes? Don't do that with dad's money. No, 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 no. What ends up happening is he looks and he says, so he called the manager and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. See, the disciples were the managers. They were the ones that were supposed to be following Jesus and manage what Jesus was doing and, and obey him. And it says... Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Do I just throw my hands up and think, well, that's it. It's all over. Just take me out now. No, look at what he does. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. At least the guy's honest. <laughs> I don't want to work and I don't want to beg, so I better figure something out. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. I know that this isn't going to go down. I'm, I'm going to be removed, but i got to make some friends. i got to figure out. So, so he summoned each of his master's debtors. Summoned each of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked them. I love this. He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil. He said, take your invoice. He told him, sit down quickly and write 50. Next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your invoice. He told him, write down 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. What? You just got cheated. And you're like, yeah, at least you did something. Like, like this story, you got to be sitting there as disciples going, no. You don't praise a guy that takes, what? He looks, he says, for the sons of this age are more astute 
than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you in eternal blessings. See, while not approving of his conduct, the master did in fact approve of the steward's shrewdness. And Jesus is saying, look, the business people of your day have more shrewdness than you guys do. To the disciples, these are the guys following him to Jerusalem. They're supposed to like lay down their lives and he's like confronting them. Like they didn't ask for this. He was teaching the Pharisees a minute ago. And he's looking at them and it says, you see, if we pursued the kingdom of God with the same vigor and zeal that the children of this world pursue profits and pleasure, Jesus is saying, we would live an entirely different life in this world. And entirely, he's saying that when you fail, at least you'd be received into an eternal home. The world's filled with financial planners and advisors. And it's good for Christians to learn to use their money wisely. But most Christians, when they talk about money management, they always talk about this earth, not an eternal investment. Goes on and he says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. See, this is the part we don't like. We want the big thing. We don't want the little things that lead to a big thing. I want to win the lottery. I don't want to recognize the fact that in my lifetime, I will have millions of dollars passed through my hands. If I live to be 60, 70 years old, do the math. It's not hard. If you made $20,000 a year, let's say you made $30,000 a year, and you live and you work 40 years, what is that? $1.2 million that will pass through your hands over your lifetime if you never get a raise. See, we don't like to think about that because then that calls us into question of what I'm doing with the pennies I have today. Do you realize that in our culture they did a study and in this study, one of the things that they realized and found out is that everyone they surveyed, when they asked about how they could get to a level of like peace and finances and a level of where they were at, almost everyone said twice as much as what they make. Didn't matter if they made 25000 250000 Well, if I had about twice as much as what I currently had, then, I, then I'd be fine. Everybody. Because that's the way we view it. We look around and say, well, what if I just had... A little more. So he says, look at this. If you understand faithfulness, then you'll be faithful with the little things. If you don't understand faithfulness, you'll be unrighteous in very little, and then your unrighteousness will turn to a lot of unrighteousness. You're going to make a lot of bad decisions. A lot of bad decisions. And they're going to add up when you don't use that money, you don't use your time wisely. And then he says... If you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what's genuine? This guy before was faithful with, with unrighteous money. He's just, then people were like, wow, we could trust this guy. He's forgiving. He cut our debts in half. He's not out for himself. He's just, wow. Goes on, it says, no household slave can be the slave of two masters since he will either hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. You can't be slaves to both. And can I just tell you, just because you don't have money doesn't mean you're not a slave to it. 
You could want it all the time. And every bit of it you get looking to use for yourself. That's just as evil as having billions. Listen, I told you this was hard this morning. Like Jesus isn't messing around. He's getting ready to die. He needs to get his teaching out and he needs to be clear. And he looks and he says, look, you can't, you've got to make a decision over what you're going to live your life for. Are you going to be a slave to God like this son said, I'll be your slave? Or, or are you going to be all about what you can get, which the son was before he repented? Which is it? The Lord knows what we need. He, he provides for us. He's not afraid to, to bless us and give us things. But the, the question is, what do you do with it? He goes on and he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at it. They're scoffing, ah, whatever. Psst. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sights. See, this is what happens with finances so often is that we justify it by saying, look at what God did. Look at how all the circumstances align that proves I'm right. You don't think the, the, the devil can align circumstances for you to be in a mess? He's really good at it, actually. And he's really patient. The devil will align circumstances for years so he can take you out in a moment. And he's looking at him and saying, look, God knows your hearts. You really don't want to be givers. You, you're looking at how you can get so that you can be admired, so that you can show off. So look at me, look at me, look at all my answers, look at what I can do, versus saying, what's God saying? That's why he goes to the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. John got beheaded, if you remember. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is being proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter it, to repent, to come to God. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to drop out. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not coming here to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to give you a power to obey God through the Holy Spirit and through my death, not a power to say, I don't have to do anything. It's a power to say, wow, the law's good, not all those laws my dad has, I'm so tired of them, I just want to get out and be free and do what I want. And see, that's what the gospel tends to be preached today, that God wants you to be free. And so you accept Jesus and then he just frees you to do whatever you want. Versus saying, no, when I accept Christ and I come back and I am broken and I come to my senses and I say, I just want to be a slave. He says, you're my son. And then I start managing things differently. The management of my life drastically changes. And God goes on a process for the rest of my life to teach me how to manage things differently according to his kingdom, not this earthly kingdom. That's what he does. And he says, it's not that the letter drops off, that the law is not important. The law is very important. The law is very important to show us how desperate we are for a savior, for a sacrifice. So when I read the law and I don't measure up to it, guess what I do? Oh, I need to repent. I need a savior. Thank you. You're my savior. Thank you, God. You're my father. Thank you. I'm your son. Okay, let's, let's do this. I'm ready to manage differently. I'm excited now. You've given me the Holy Spirit and the power to do this. Yes. Not, oh, dumb law again. And that's why when Jesus goes to this next section, it would have been very offensive. Because listen, the next part he goes into, he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Ouch. He doesn't mince words. Is adultery a forgivable offense? I believe David, King David, is in heaven. 
Let me say that again. I believe King David is in heaven. King David committed adultery. <laughs> it is a forgivable offense. Okay? I'm just letting you know. But Jesus is looking, and here's why he confronts it. The Pharisees had made a living off divorce proceedings. You had to buy your divorce. You had to come to their courts to get paid off. They made a, they made a living off of this, like we do in our culture with lawyers and judges and the mess that we have of family. And he looks and he says, look, if you do this, it's adult. stay committed to your covenants if you can. Does Jesus permit adultery? Yeah, Jesus talked about, or not adultery, divorce. He talked about that in the case of divorce, in the case of adultery, there's room for divorce. But do you recognize that really when you study the scriptures, the reason for divorcing someone is someone had to be declared an unbeliever, according to Paul's teachings. That when someone would have committed adultery, because Jesus said you need to forgive 70 times 7, your brother or sister. Ouch. That's a lot. He says that's the heart. And he said, look, I'm just telling you now. So what do we do with this? It's simple. If you've done this, you repent. God, I'm sorry. I'm not worthy to be married. I'm not worthy to be with this person. I got nothing to offer. I just, I'm a slave to you. What do you want me to do? And God says, okay, I can work with that. And he begins you on the process of figuring out how to work with that. And we call the body of believers together. We celebrate repentance. We celebrate the desire to be aligned with God's will. And we walk through people through the hardness and the difficulty of it. That's what we do. Because that sin is no more awful than another one. It has a lot more awful consequences long term. But, but this, this is hard stuff. Jesus goes right from money to marriage. Because the two are connected. Because typically the reason marriages break up, number one cause of divorce is what? Money. It's money. You won't manage things together. You won't come under Christ, under his body to manage things. And somebody goes, I'm out because I'm not putting up with this. It's awful. And God's heart breaks and Jesus' heart breaks. And he says, this is not my desire for people. He goes on. He says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple linen, feasting, lavishing every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. If he's covered with sores, it's not like he did that to himself. Lazarus wasn't a sinner who went out and got sores on purpose. He, he just got sick. And it says, look at this, one day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. So now Jesus has talked about relationships. He's talked about money. He's talked about the old covenant and the law. He's talked about marriage. And now he's going right into this again. He's going to talk about hell. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. This is the same message as the younger brother. I'm in agony. The difference is he doesn't ask to get out because he knows he can't. He's experienced the judgment of God in hell and he knows there's no way out. And look at what he says. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. 
Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. There is a great chasm of sin, and the one that crossed the chasm was Jesus. Jesus is pointing to himself here. Jesus pointed to himself as the fatted calf. He's the fatted calf that's being fattened up to be slaughtered in Jerusalem. Now he's, he's the one that's going to cross this bridge. And I love this because look at what he goes on to say. Father, he said, then I beg you, if you can't do anything for me, I beg you to send him to my father's house. The, old, the younger son wanted nothing to do with his dad. He wanted his dad dead. But this guy who's in hell and he knows he, or in Hades, and he, know he, he knows he can't get out and there's no hope for him, he has more compassion for his family members than the people that are alive. Because he fully understands what it means to not know the father. He says, so they won't also come to this place of tor torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. This guy gets it. He now understands the message of the Old Testament. This guy's in Hades and he gets the whole picture. He understands what he missed. He understands that I taught the wrong thing. I was taught the wrong thing. I'm separated now from God. Oh God, please go warn my loved ones. Please tell them that there's one that's gonna come that will die for them. That, and if you do that, surely if someone will die for you, you'll, they'll repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. If you don't believe the Old Testament, you're not going to believe a new one. Not the true new one. Then he goes on and he says, he said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come. Listen, you're going to get offended. You're going to offend others. Offenses come. They just do. Then he says, but woe, woe to the one they come through. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. In other words, this guy realizes we've caused a bunch of people to stumble. Please go warn them. Please go tell them. And Jesus says, woe to the one that causes them to stumble. And he's talking to the Pharisees at this point, And they get what he's saying. And then he says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. If he repents... Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Wow. That's heavy. And here was the disciples' response, knowing they're looking at that going, how in the world do we do that? And this is what the disciples said. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The disciples recognized there is no way we have enough faith to do that. If there isn't a supernatural faith given to us, there's no way we can forgive like that. There's no way we can rebuke like that. I don't like rebuking people. I just want to keep the peace. I can't rebuke like that, and I can't forgive like that if I don't have a supernatural faith. Help us with our faith, because our faith doesn't get this stuff. He goes on and he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, a tiny little seed, 
The Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will, be obey, it will obey you. In other words, you can uproot the sin and the mess and the disaster in life. You can uproot your own hard-hearted heart if you just have enough faith to believe that God himself loves you, that he's forgiven you, that repentance is worth it, that you can call people to repent, you can call people, you can forgive them. Listen, forgiveness doesn't mean you give them permission to keep hurting. It just says, I don't hold it against you. God might, I don't. But it wasn't right and it wasn't good. Paul says it this way because here's the real tension as we wrap up in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul says, I wrote to you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. See, here's the caveat. Remember, the Pharisees, this whole mess started, but we just read through why. Because Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, worldly people. Paul says, no, you can't go against what Jesus taught or what he did. Here's what he says. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbal abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Jesus just said, rebuke and forgive. It's the same message. I rebuke you, and I'm not going to let you keep hurting, but you need, you need to repent. You need, you need to come to God. You need to go to him. You need, you need, to, you need to fall. I'm, I'm nothing, and I'm grateful. That, that's exactly what Paul's saying. And he's saying if you've got people that aren't doing that, they need to be confronted, and if they don't change, be careful how you treat them. Be careful that you don't pretend like everything's okay between you when it's not, when there is a chasm. Because one of you, is going to get to the end someday and realize I was wrong. And it's going to be too late. And it could be you, it could be them. But you'd better lean in to figure that out instead of running away. Because if you don't, it could be scary in the end. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I'm telling you, be careful. And he's not saying be careful with all those worldly people. <laughs> he's saying, no, the ones that are deceiving you, be careful. Call them to repentance. And if they repent, don't go, I got them. No, celebrate. There's joy. Woohoo! Let's work on this together. It's exactly what he says. Jesus wraps up and says, Which one of you having a slave tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, he will not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that slave because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are good for nothing slaves. We've only done our duty. See, Jesus started with repentance. And he said, if you know him, you're going to come down to the end of your life still repenting. Still saying, I got nothing but you. And if you give me another day, then I'll, I'll live it for you. I'll, I'll, be who you. I'll be who you want me to be. I'll fight. See, that, that's what he's saying. That I'm a, I'm a good-for-nothing slave, but I've done my duty. 
And Jesus says he will say one day to those, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Not because of the works you've done, but because of the response that you had to him. That you keep saying, I'm nothing, and God keeps saying, you're everything. I'm nothing, no, you're not, you're everything. I, I died for you, I laid my, that's the message of the gospel. It's how we respond to God when we look at the mess of our lives and God says, I'm still seeking, I'm still saving, I'm still looking for lost people, I haven't quit, I haven't brought my second coming to come back yet, there's still hope, there's still time to warn those who don't know. And that's what he gives us. So what is it that people hear about you? What is it people hear about you? Are you inviting people into your repentance? Like the shepherd? Like the coin? Like the lost son? Like the manager? Are you inviting people in to see the real you and I'm a mess and here's what God's done? Or is it just keeping up appearances? Because what God wants you to hear about you that he loves you. That he has a plan It's going to cost you your life because it cost him his and it's worth it. 